So my title for us this morning is Judas Iscariot, the Betrayer. And this morning, as you can already tell, we're moving with that forward progress through John chapter 13. Not too quickly. Uh, Having said that, I know I need to cash some chips back in after last week. Somebody called the office and, and they said, I had such a good, it was such a good service last Sunday. And, and Patty said, oh, that's great. And they said, I liked the second sermon the most. Yeah, yesterday or last week was pretty long. So I, thank you for your patience. No negative reviews. We appreciate that too. I'm going to cash some chips back in, put them back on the table, give you a short message today because we do have a business meeting to follow this morning. So let me just begin by saying this. Betrayal is something that has been portrayed in a number of media, most of which you are very familiar with. Think about it. In the wonderful novel, Count of Monte Cristo by Alexander Dumas. What a great book if you're a reader. If you're not a reader, perhaps you saw the movie. In any case, Edmond Dantes is betrayed by his best friend, Fernand Mondego. And then, of course, we know of Brutus's betrayal of Julius Caesar, Et tu Brute, in Shakespeare. Or that time in the office when Dwight met with Jan behind Michael's back because he wanted to be the regional manager. And Michael felt very betrayed. See, I knew I would click on somebody's level there. Chips? Did I win chips? Okay. My daughter's a huge office fan. He wanted to be the regional manager of Duffler Mifflin. And Michael felt betrayed. Anyway, a moment of levity. I wasn't meeting with Jan, Dwight says. I was meeting with the dentist. I'm chasing a rabbit here. What was the dentist's name? And Dwight says to Michael, Dr. Crentist. (laughs) See, only she laughs. It is not even funny. Anyway, John 13, come on. Help me out, people. Okay, so... All of these pale in comparison, these great novels, these great stories, these funny shows that we watch, they all pale in comparison to this one, this church, this situation of this betrayal around Judas and our Lord. Even the very name Judas has become a name associated with betrayal, an infamous name, an epithet ascribed to people who stab other people in the back. You Judas, people say. And everybody knows exactly what is meant. So this is a short but important study this morning. Some ten verses describing in this intimate setting the announcement of imminent betrayal and the revelation of the betrayer. So two simple points this morning, the first of which is the announcement. Let's start there. The announcement, verses 21 to 25. Again, very quickly, it says, after saying these things, that's last week, you can listen to the podcast for that, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Interesting use of word here by John, testified. In the Greek, it's the word martyrio. It's the word we get martyr from. But a martyr wasn't someone who died for the faith. A martyr literally means a witness. You see, they died because they were a witness. They weren't a martyr because they died. So here, John is saying, Jesus troubled in his spirit, martyrio, he he testified. This is something that is important 
to Jesus that these people here, his friends at this last supper, hear what's on his mind, what's on his mind and what's in his heart. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples looked up, as you might imagine, one another, one another, uncertain as to, as to who he was referring to, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. This is John's sort of humble attempt to refer to himself, by the way, the author of John. We know that John was extremely young at this time. He was the youngest of all the disciples. And uh, as a young man, he had a, maybe a special place in, in the heart of Christ because Jesus saw not only the disciples as his friends and his followers, but I think he saw John as the next generation as well. So John refers to himself here as the disciple Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. And if you know anything about that setting, the Eastern way, the tables don't have chairs. They're low to the ground and you lean on an elbow. And it seems to suggest that John is kind of leaning into Jesus. So Simon Peter mentions to him, or motions to John, like, ask him. Ask him which one he's talking about. And John says, who is it that you're talking about? The one who's going to betray you. So first and foremost, we have the announcement. Jesus says what's on his mind and in his heart. And with this, Jesus is announcing the fact that in their midst, someone is going to betray him. It says in the text that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Even at the end, even with the knowledge that he possessed of his future glory and Judas's unrepentant heart, Still, it burdened our Lord that Judas would betray him. It weighed on him. John continually reminds us of the fact that Jesus is the very Son of God. He reminds us by giving us the I am teachings that Jesus gives us. I am the resurrection and the life, for example. He reminds us by telling us of the miracles that Jesus performed, which John calls signs of his divine glory. He even mentions the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus is not only the Son of God. Jesus is also the Son of Man. Not only divine, but also human. And John doesn't hesitate to give us a glimpse of the emotions that Jesus feels at such a difficult moment as this. Think about it for a minute. Most of these men have left their employment. They have left their families, even their marriages, to follow Jesus 24 hours a day. Yet, they're in this circumstance and hearing these words from the Lord and yes, these were very special circumstances. Nevertheless, the special circumstances don't dilute the sacrifice that these men made. Amen? To follow Jesus. Even Peter himself once said this. It's going to come up on the screen so you can read it with your eyes. Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, will have follow, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters and father and mother or children or lands for my sake will receive how much? A hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last will be first. I, I think Peter is making, making a statement here. Everyone has left everything to follow you. This statement, by the way, comes on the heel of Jesus telling the rich man, essentially, you're not going to be saved unless you give up what you have. That's what was between him and Jesus. He had a love of possession and material. And Jesus said, give it all up, give it to the poor. And the man said, yeah, that's too much. Peter says, well, we give we gave up everything that we've got. W- what about us? If the rich can't be saved, who can be saved? And that's when he says in Matthew 11, uh, sorry, 19.26, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So then, okay, so if, if, if all things are possible with God, who can be saved then? Uh, we've given up everything. Does that mean that we can be saved? And the Lord reminds Peter, I know what you've given up. And just to, just to remind you, no one who makes a sacrifice for my sake ends up empty. Some people come into the family of God without any siblings from a broken home, and they get moms and dads and brothers and sisters. They get hundredfold what they had before Christ. The church is the body of Christ designed to hold together sinners like you and me and help us to realize that in Christ all of our needs are met. So he tells Peter that, although Peter brings up a good point. Jesus addresses that that, that point with Peter. I'm having trouble getting my words together here, so just roll with me. So these men were aware of what they gave up to commit to Jesus, but so was Jesus. Jesus was aware of it too. He reminded them that their sacrifice, though, wasn't what gave them their position in the kingdom. That's why he says, for example, many who are first will be last and last will be first. It's grace. You're not sacrificing your way into the kingdom. It's It's always grace. So here are these men, having made sacrifices, having visibly at least committed to following Jesus, all of them, each and every one in their own way, looking at each other in disbelief, wondering which one of them is the traitor. Because sometimes superficially, say, I mean, if you're listening, sometimes it's hard to tell who's holding the knife. Sometimes it's hard to tell who's going to stab you in the back. Well, Jesus puts it out there. It's the announcement, right? So now everyone is like, well, dinner was going well. (laughs) You know, Jesus washed our feet, dropped this huge teaching on service and the importance of if I'm serving you, you've got to serve others. Like, this is how it's going to go. By the way, one of you is going to betray me, right? Screeching halt of good feelings. So we're going to get to this next point this morning. That is this, the reveal. We've got the announcement, and now we're at the reveal. Verses 26 through 30. Just very quickly to read them. Again, it says, uh, beginning in 26, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, Simon Iscariot, the son of Simon Iscariot. So after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, that is into Judas, well, this kind of sounds like a dangling modifier there, but it's referring to Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And now no one 
at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast. And others thought maybe he was going to give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So with the suspense hanging in the air, the reveal occurs. You can probably imagine the feeling in the room. Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be you? What does it mean that one of us will betray this guy that we have sacrificed and committed our lives to? It says that the disciples, or excuse me, the disciple that Jesus loved, again, a reference of John, the author of the gospel, to himself. I'm going to get into that a little more later asked who it would be, and Jesus answers. And it seems to be there in verse 26 that Jesus, I think many of Christ, many Christians have this understanding, that Jesus kind of like announced it. I don't think that's what's being intimated here. I think what's being intimated here is that Jesus goes, sorry, I told you I'm having trouble today. John goes, Lord, who is it? And Jesus goes, it's the one I give the bread to. I think that's what takes place here. I don't think, I don't think Peter goes, ask him. And he goes, Lord, who's the, who's the traitor? And he goes, the traitor will be the one to whom I give. The I don't think that's how it happened. I think Jesus said, it's going to be the one I give the bread to. I think John knew. I don't think anybody else knew. It is he to whom I give this morsel after I dip it. He dips the bread and he hands it to Judas. An act, it can be argued, by the way, an act that is really bathed in grace. This act would be kind of the equivalent of you sort of having people over to the house and you fix the first plate for your guest and give it to them. It's like, it's like hey, let me fix you a plate. It, it's sort of an act of grace or kindness or honor. Even in this moment with the tension being what it is and an awareness of Jesus being what it is, Jesus dips the morsel and he hands it to Judas. And when he hands it to Judas, it's almost like a final extension from Jesus to Judas. But in doing so as well, he's revealing, at least to John, who the culprit is. Then it says, after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, that is, into Judas. I don't know why John orders this verse this way. After taking the morsel, Satan entered into him. But I think it's because there's significance here, and we can't miss it. Judas wasn't a good man. We already know that. If you've been with us through the Gospel of John, we've already determined from various references throughout the Gospel of John that Judas was not a stand-up guy. He was pretty crooked. And what's more, chapter 13, verse 2, if you want to go to the beginning of this chapter that we're studying this morning, says that Satan put it in the heart of Judas to betray Jesus already. 
I think that would certainly qualify as what we might say provocation or influence or temptation. But here we see there's a reveal. It is he to whom I give the morsel and then what I can only take as a final opportunity from Jesus to Judas. Here it is, man. I know it's you. Here's your final chance. My final extension from myself to you. But he doesn't receive it. He doesn't take it. He doesn't repent. He accepts the dip morsel from Jesus, and then Satan enters into him. You see the order there. He accepts, or excuse me, he accepts the morsel, rejects the opportunity, and then Satan enters into Judas. I think it's safe to say that there's a point here from our perspective, and it is that in this moment, Judas's eternal fate was sealed. Friends, we have a faith that believes in the reality of the spiritual realm and therefore spiritual warfare. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 6. I think it's going to come up here on the screen. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in heavenly places. But from this episode, we can certainly learn an important lesson both for ourselves and for others. Say amen if you're still with me. We have to be careful not to postpone repentance. We have to be careful not to postpone repentance. We all know people who are always putting off getting right with God through Jesus Christ, don't we? You can probably think of a few people right now, people who said, man, if this is true, I'm definitely going to church on Sunday, and who have never been to church. Man, if it works out this way, God, I, I, I make a vow to you. If, you. if you do this for me in my life, God, and God will do it, and, and what vow is kept? How many people do we know that simply procrastinate when it comes to the faith, but nothing else? They rush into sin, but they drag when it comes to the Savior. They hurry to get into trouble, but they're slow to get out. Resist the devil, James said, and he will flee from you. That's Christian faith. I know that there's a movement within the church where the guy on the stage talks to the devil. You know, Satan, I bind you and blah, blah. There's nothing, there's absolutely no evidence for that in the New Testament at all whatsoever. In fact, in the book of Jude, it says that when the archangel Michael was taking possession of the body of Moses, nobody knows where Moses' body is. We have never known. When the archangel Michael was taking the body of Moses, Satan wanted the body. Why? Because I think that he would have made him an idol. I mean, could you imagine knowing where the body of Moses is? It would be like a Mecca for Judaism and Christianity. God in his wisdom said that body's not staying there. And the archangel Michael was, was arguing with Satan over the body. Satan wanted the body. God sent the archangel Michael to take possession of the body. And Jude says that when that event took place, the archangel Michael said, God will deal with you. You're no angel. We're no archangels here. 
Nobody on the stage on television or radio is an archangel, and yet they take freedoms and liberty that the Bible does not permit them to take. Not even God's angels that stand at his right hand and do his bidding talk to the devil. You have no right to talk to the devil. James says, you want to deal with the devil? Yes, just resist. Resist him and he'll leave you alone. That's the extent of your involvement with the devil. When he tempts you, say no. And that's it. Resist and he will leave you alone. It's a little convicting when you think about it. Oh, all I got to do is resist and he'll leave me alone? Yeah, then why does he keep bothering me? John says, he received the morsel of bread and he immediately went out, suggesting he wasted no time and it was night. It was night. Did you get that? It was night. The night that Jesus would be betrayed. But it was night in another sense too. As one author puts it, it is always night when one listens to the summons of evil rather than the call of good. Another author says this, it was the black night in the soul of Judas. Years later, this same John would write a letter to his church. We call it 1 John. And in that letter, John writes these words, God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. As has been John's practice thus far, so it is here. He pits light against darkness, good against evil, not because they're equal, but because there is only one of two ways you and I can go. In Christianity, there is no neutral ground. Now the world, philosophies, our country, politicians, they love to meddle in middle ground because nobody knows where the boundaries actually are. But in Christianity, there is no middle ground. You are either with Christ or you are against him. You are either gathering with him or you are scattering abroad. You either obey him or you disobey. There's not that line where you say, well, I intended to to obey. It's not how it works in Christianity. In Christianity, we make a full commitment and we walk in the light. Now, that doesn't mean that every now and then you and I don't stumble and fall. It doesn't mean we don't trip and end up in the darkness by our mistakes and our missteps and our misdeeds. But at the end of the day, we have to say to ourselves, am I comfortable in the darkness or in the light? And some people who are comfortable in the dark need to have a reminder of the fact that no Christian is comfortable in the dark. If you are in Christ, you hate the dark. You hate evil. You don't play with it. You don't toy with it. You don't tolerate it. You don't excuse it. If you find it in your own life, you pray in Jesus' name that it's eradicated. It's not to say that I'm perfect or that you're perfect, but there's a difference between a pig that falls in the mud 
and a sheep that falls in the mud. Both get dirty. One loves it. You and I need to come to terms with the reality of the call of Christ in our lives. And may it never happen that we look around our own body of believers or a gathering and fellowship of Christ followers and say, is it me? Who could it be? On the contrary, I would love for all of us to have the confidence in Christ if a situation like that were to happen, to just put our chin up and our chest out and say, I can tell you one thing, it ain't me. It's not going to be me, but the reality of the matter is, is we failed Christ on more than one occasion. Say amen. Amen. There's been opportunities that God has orchestrated and organized that we might be a great light in this dark world, and we said, "Ah, I'm going to go home first. I'm running late for an appointment. Or I'm afraid this person might ask me a question I don't know the answer to. You know that a prerequisite for evangelism is not the knowledge of everything, right? Let me tell you what you need to know to be able to do evangelism. God sent his son Jesus to die for your sin. And if you believe in him, you'll be saved. What about the dinosaurs? I don't know if they're going to heaven or not. All I can tell you is, if you believe in Jesus, you will. That's evangelism. I know there's more to it. You know I know that. I love doctrine. I love theology. I love for us to get down and dirty in the Word of God and break the bread over the fellowship of the Word of God. It's so satisfying. to me. I love that, but at the end of the day, I praise God for the simplicity of the gospel. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son does not have life. It's 1 John 5, 12. It doesn't get any easier than that, does it? It's simple, and it's meant to be simple because God is not being ugly in his exclusivity. He's being gracious. He doesn't say, if you do this, and you light this candle, and you take this trip, and you make this, and you do these sacrifices, and you give this much, and and you believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. He says, if you have Jesus, you're saved. If you don't have Jesus, you're not saved. And here's a guy who is sitting next to Jesus. And in his spite for the fact that Jesus won't be the kind of Savior he wants him to be, he refuses to repent. And his eternal destiny is secured. Because that last extension of grace from Jesus to Judas was denied. Satan enters his heart. Listen, you and I were Christians. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are baptized by God the Holy Spirit, just as Juliet was baptized this morning. So at the moment of your conversion, you are possessed by God the Holy Spirit. If you are possessed by God the Holy Spirit, you can't be possessed by anything or anybody else. You can be bothered. You can be annoyed. Satan can come to you in a variety of ways and say, don't you want to? Are you sure you don't want to? James teaches us how to deal with that. James says, resist him. Tell that punk no. I lived that way, I lived that way before. I'm living Christ's way now. By his strength and his help, because God has possessed me with God the Holy Spirit 
And I love what God the Holy Spirit is referred to as in Ephesians chapter 1, the guarantee of our future glory. That's why it's so important that we teach against things like conditional security. Maybe you'll be saved in the end. Maybe you won't. That's not biblical. What is biblical is that if you place your faith in Christ, what Christ begins, Christ finishes. And he does not possess us with his spirit to take his spirit back and lose us in eternity. Jesus said it best, all that my father has given me, I have and I will lose none. That's not my word. That's the Lord's word. However, you and I, we still have a Monday to look forward to. Amen or oh me? So I'm going to leave you with one more verse, and we're going to close with this. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you want to make a note of it, you can. Verses 12 and 13. I'm going to read it to you because I want you to be aware of this fact. It might be surprising, but Christians do sin. But the Lord does not want us to, amen? He wants us to walk in his footsteps, which is exactly what discipleship means. The word disciple in Greek means student. It literally refers to the way your, your master walks. As your master walks, as the student, you follow behind and you put your foot in your master's footsteps. You walk like Jesus. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, Paul says, so walk in him. How good is that?